This morning's reading is Genesis chapter 3, and it can be found on page 5 in the Bibles in your seats. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. The snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened And they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The snake said, the woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. 
After he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We live in an extraordinarily beautiful world. It is a world full of beauty and goodness and wonder. But we can say of that same world... We live in such a disordered world, such a painful world, so much discord, sometimes downright evil. It's the same world. What are we to make of the fact that we have this good disordered world. Even when we look at things of great beauty, we can sometimes perceive and know even there there's there's flaws, there's it's not yet perfect. And actually even when we look at places of great evil and darkness, we can sometimes see, even there, some shoots, some small rays of light and hope. It is a mixed world we live in. What do we make of this? What do we make of Genesis chapter 3? which is the Bible's account, really, of why that is, or at least the second half of that. Why, in this beautiful creation, is there disorder, suffering, pain, discord? And right at the heart of it, right at the heart of it, is or are human beings. We are at the heart of the beauty of the world and of its goodness. And we're at the heart of its problems. <laughs> we have uh, the image, the backdrop uh, up. Humanity created in the image of God. And that image has not been erased but it has been broken (laughs) so that it is not seen as clearly and as well as as was originally intended. It is distorted, broken, but not erased. Well, Genesis 
3. What are we to make of this passage? In uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, he writes that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that is true of Genesis chapter 3. It is inspired, it is really useful, and it's true. But I'm going to say how I reflect upon this. And that is that I believe that Genesis 3 is not straightforward history. It is history. It tells us how things have happened. But I don't think it's straightforward history. Because human rebellion against God is real. It is real. And it had a beginning. And consequences have flowed from that rebellion. In every following generation. And indeed, I think Genesis 3 tells us how things, how human beings did rebel, but also tells us something about how human beings do rebel still. <laughs> As I said, I, I think it is history, but not straightforward history the way a sort of 21st century academic would write history. I think it's symbolic history. A little bit similar to another passage of scripture at the other end of the Bible. In uh, Revelation chapter 12, we read of a dragon seeking to devour a young child. It's symbolic language, but it's talking about things which happened in history. The seeking to extinguish the life of Jesus Christ. And the spiritual forces behind it. In Revelation, the image of a dragon. In Genesis chapter 3, it's a uh, talking snake. The devil is not actually named in either place, <laughs> but his symbolic presence is there. So I don't think it is straightforward history. I don't think my approach is that I don't think archaeologists are going to be able to suddenly say, we have found Eden. We can give you the GPS. I, I somehow just, I, I don't think that's quite the way of, of reading this. And even the, the language of God walking in the garden seems symbolic rather than absolutely literal. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So let me point out to you various features of this passage which is so useful for teaching this passage makes clear that there is a spiritual enemy seeking to undermine God's creation specifically through encouraging human beings to go against the will and instructions of God. In Genesis 3, listen to the words, not too carefully, 
of the talking serpent. But listen to them and hear how he's undermining our trust in the character of God. He, He portrays God as some petty, capricious despot who is just putting rules there just for the sake of it. But our creator God is our heavenly father who cares for us deeply. And when he sets limits, they are for our good. And it is still true, it is still true that we will be most tempted to ignore the ways of God if we do not actually recognise God as a trustworthy, loving father. If that can be undermined in us, then we can say, well, why, why should we bear? You know, why, why should we go along with his ways? There is a spiritual enemy seeking to undermine God's creation through us. But having said that, the second point I'm wanting, the second feature of this passage I'm wanting to draw out, particularly this morning, is <laughs> there might be a spiritual enemy, but that does not let us off the hook of responsibility. There is human responsibility for the choices which our forebears made, those first humans, <laughs> but also the choices which we make. We're responsible. We might be very tempted to, to shift blame. In fact, there are, I think there are three different directions where blame is sought to be shifted. God has none of it. Adam, in a really short sentence, manages to get blame going in two directions, which is quite clever in that few, you know, in this, those few words. He said, the woman who you put here, if it's not her fault, it's your fault. Blaming his neighbour, blaming God for not getting things quite right. And uh, wife continues it and just says, okay, let's probably blame another way. You know, that snake in the grass. Hmm. Him. But actually, there might be truth in the fact that there is spiritual temptation, there are forces undermining us. It might well be true that the people around us are not being at all helpful in helping us to live a righteous life and are pulling us in wrong directions. Actually, God does know what he's doing. But God's having none of that. And he's saying, you're responsible for the decisions which you make. Third feature, third feature, 
protecting a spiritual enemy, human responsibility. A third feature I want you to draw attention to is that uh, the consequences of human beings choosing their own way is a deeply damaged relationship with God. I used to sometimes talk about... um, I I used to talk about, about it utterly separating us from God. Actually, as I read this, that doesn't actually seem right. I just think the relationship is deeply, deeply damaged, such that the intimacy is gone. The the place in the heart of of communing with God and of of being at at home in his presence has gone. But actually, God is still dealing with people. God is still dealing with people. But the intimacy, the, the, the freedom, the real goodness is gone. Banished from the garden. And they feel shame before God and seek to hide from him. That wonderful place of community, gone. Communion with God, gone. There's still communication between God and humanity. But it's not the same. The fourth feature I'm wanting to say is that just there are consequences way beyond just our our relationship with God. That there are consequences in all kinds of aspects of the creation. After all, God placed human beings right at the heart of his purposes. You want to undermine creation, get to human beings. So when, when human beings disobey, all kinds of fractures appear all around. Pain is mentioned. Toil and a lack of harmony uh, is mentioned. I, I, th- I think uh, this kind of sweat of the brow work, I, I, I do think God is a worker. Um, in we see him fashioning the world uh, in uh, the opening uh, chapters of Genesis, uh, which we looked at last week. And we're made in his image. So, so I think working is, is part of God's original intention that, that, that we do things. But, but the kind of hard toil of that, rather than the glorious creativity of that. No. It's... It's kind of all the difference between, you know, kind of being able to join in the creativity of God and having to sit an exam. But also there are relationships between human beings which are distorted and fractured. There's only two of them. But we see that that strain. We see mutual blame and shame. 
we also see, I mean, I think as Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis go on, you get to Cain and Abel, and you, you, you get the uh, fracture between human beings becoming even more clear. But even here, and I, and I think we, we see it sometimes with, with aspects of gender relations, the relationships between men and women, disordered and distorted. It's only after the rebellion that God said that man would rule over his wife. And something which just struck me, struck me, I think, really for the first time when I was looking at this passage afresh this uh, week, is that uh, we're quite used to talking about Adam and Eve in the garden, etc. She doesn't get the name Eve until right at the end, after, after this. In creation, we get God bringing the animals for human beings and Adam to name them. And then he names his wife. It's an act of domination, actually. And that domination, that, that skewed gender relations, actually, I, I, I think is, 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 is coming from here. It's not part of God's original intention. He'll rule over. Oh, well, I'll give her a name. And we know that in Romans chapter 8, in the New Testament, we're told creation, the whole of creation groans that that somehow when, when human beings go wrong, the whole created order why? Because actually God had put us in charge, not to dominate, but I think a little bit more like um, appointing a school prefect. One from among creation, if you like, saying, right, you're in charge. And I think uh, most of us will be able to remember uh, school prefects or something similar who thought, ha ha, the power. And used it just to make themselves feel big and other people feel small. They thought that the power was all to do with, now I've got the rights over this whole thing. That, 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 that's not the intention. It's saying, look, you, look after the well-being of this creation as part of the creation, but you look after it. You steward it for me. And we've ended up dominating it. And we're told that the whole of creation groans to be released. And that the release of the whole of creation is, is tied up with the release and the redemption of human beings. The last feature I'm wanting to draw attention to is that God sows hope. He, he plants hope. He, he points to hope, even at this point of, of rebellion and discord. 
I mean, one of the things which just made me think, the relationship is not entirely broken down, certainly not from God's side. <laughs> certainly not from God's side. He provides for them even afterwards, doesn't he? So he provided them with something a bit better than the fig leaves. He still provides for humanity. He's still a generous God, even though the relationship has become so distorted. So the relationship is damaged, deeply, deeply damaged, but not entirely ended. Not entirely ended, the relationship between God and human beings. I think if it had entirely ended, we would have a much shorter Bible. It would end at chapter 3, and actually it wouldn't have been written in the first place because he wouldn't be talking to us. So he's, he's still interested in us. He wants to make things right. He wants to make things better and There is a verse in here which generations of Christians have pointed to and said, "Ah, look, we see a small sign here, even here, of Jesus. In verse 13, sorry, not 13, 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There's, there's this discord between the serpent and humanity. And it's saying, there's a descendant of Eve, a descendant of the woman, a descendant of humanity, one who will come, who will crush the spiritual enemy underfoot. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Utterly human, utterly divine. A descendant, a new Adam, as he's referred to often by uh, the Apostle Paul. Crush the evil which seeks to undermine us. But he'll get bitten in the heel in the process. He'll get wounded in that spiritual battle. So we see here just a a, a hint, a glimpse, a, a, a sliver of light coming from God's future, even into this place of deepest darkness. So there are spiritual forces which are real and troublesome, spiritual enemies. But that doesn't let us off the hook of human responsibility. We've damaged and our relationship with God and, and lost our intimacy with him. And all other relationships, both human and, and with the rest of creation, are, are distorted and marred. But God hasn't given up on us. God has not given up on us. As we are in this series of looking at creation, then the fall this week. But then we look at Israel. God hasn't given, he's got a rescue plan. Jesus, the church, he's got a rescue plan. He's got a rescue plan. He's not given up on us. 
there is good news. But sometimes we have to face the bad news to find out how good the good news really is. Amen.